Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the reason behind America's 17% rise in hate crime. We have seen it, perhaps in recent years, like maybe never before. The cause, the seed, I'll say it, y'all, white supremacy. We get the first African-American president of the United States. Post-racial is still a mirage. We built the country with deeply entrenched systems of racial and patriarchal privilege. Why memberships to hate groups are ticking up. See, he poked the craziest enough that he thinks he can just put him back to sleep, and he can't. And look at the history, political system, and dismantling of the white power structure. More than a week after the midterm, some elections still have not been decided. It's close to call because there are still ballots to be counted. A voting expert walks us through just how votes are being counted. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Notice anything new? We now have a custom theme song thanks to KYW editor Quentin Clyatt, a.k.a. Q Music. Thank you so much for the sounds, the beats. It sounds amazing and it fits our personality here at Flashpoint. So please, please, please provide a review. Let us know what you think. We appreciate it. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is America's rise in acts of hate and bias. We have seen it, perhaps in recent years, like maybe never before. The cause, the seed, white supremacy. The Constitution is on one hand created on a society built upon the idea of white male power. On the other hand, it's a land where all are created equal. Through generations, America ended slavery, gave black people citizenship and women the right to vote, then granted civil rights to people of color. And then, of course, the election of the first black president, Barack Obama, and now backlash. We're going to take our country back from these. So how do we quell the hate while maintaining our peaceful democracy. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Chad Dion Lassiter. He's executive director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. He's also an expert in American race relations. We also have Rogers Smith. He's a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania with a special interest in race. And finally, on the phone, we have Frank Mink. He's author of Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. Everyone, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. Good morning. Great to be here. I want to start with you, Chad. Can you give me just a, a working definition of white supremacy and briefly explain its connection to the American power structure? It's as old as empire. It's part of the fabric of our democracy. Uh, it's the shadow of hate. It's a structure. It's an ideology that supposes that a particular race is superior over others. Um, and it doesn't discriminate just on one side of the color line or gender line. So white supremacy is the tree that I see and the branches would be xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, institutional racism, which is prejudice plus power, forms of bigotry and all forms of oppression and marginalization. So this and this whole country built on that structure, on the ideology of it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so when we look at the first 12 presidents of the United States of America, all of them owned slaves, mm-hmm. um, brilliant men in one sense, uh, but a pillar of contradictions in another sense, not seeing the humanity in the individuals negating their humanity, rendering them to non-person and non-entity. 
And so, you know, Rogers, Chad laid it out. We have a working definition here. White supremacy was set up. It's, it was listed in the Constitution for the most part. Pretty much carried on. We had some debates, civil war, all these things. And then B- President Barack Obama was elected. Did this open up a Pandora's box or was the box kind of already open and now we just blew the door off? Barack Obama's election represented a major triumph in the struggle to deal with those contradictions that Chad referred to. Mm-hmm. There were always traditions that emphasized equal rights for all and also powerful traditions of white supremacy. Through political contests, we did end up passing civil rights acts, voting rights acts mm-hmm. that resulted in a greater diversity in America and in America's electorate, and that made it possible to elect Barack Obama. But his election was a threat to those white Americans who were accustomed to thinking of this as a white man's country. Yeah. And that threat is being played out, I think, a lot in in the news. We see it just in the uptick in the hate crimes and things like that. And so I want to talk to you, Frank. Frank, you at the age of 13 uh, became a skinhead, but you're no longer in that life. First of all, what was it about that lifestyle that attracted you to that and then why did you decide to abandon it first i just want to go over some of the stuff that was just talked about real quick and because i'm totally on board one of the ways i always when people talk about words or institutional racism because sometimes you talk to white people and they're like oh my god i didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth i had it hard they don't understand what it's like when there's a stop and frisk in a city that will humiliate you and degrade you as a man because you might have a bulge in your pocket. And, you know, so there's other kinds of, and then also the private prison industry is another huge conflict of interest mm-hmm. in this country where we have lawmakers who own stock in private prisons. There's a huge conflict of interest there. And most of those private prisons are filled with people not my color. Yeah. So that's one. That's institutional racism. Me becoming part of a group, I went to an all-black school up in Southwest Philly. I went to a school, Pepper Middle School, which is no longer open. And I went there and the school was, it was a rough school. And uh, there's maybe 20 white males that went there at the time. And so sometimes, we, you know, we got jumped, we get, you know, harassed. And, and I was already coming from a really bad home life anyway. My stepdad was beating me pretty well and uh, moving in with my dad. and He's doing his own thing. And I didn't have the greatest home life for someone to say to me, you know, how's things going? Because when these skinheads, when these neo-Nazis up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania first started to hang with me and I started to hang with them, what I liked about it was they would always ask me, what's it like growing up around black people? Like, they would ask me these questions. There were times when they didn't believe that I, they would say, do you take the train with black people every day? They're like, yeah, I take, this is 1988. And I would say, yeah, I take the train with black people every day. People might think that's really weird that they didn't think that way, but the perspective of living, imagine if I sat them, sat them down and said, I can't believe, you see Amish people every day? Like, yeah. So, you know, yeah. they didn't yeah. know my perspective. But, but what it did to me is that it made it when my parent when I walked in my parents' house, my parents were drug addicts, they didn't care much about me. I walked in and never said, hey, how's school? How come you got a black eye? How's football going? How's this? When these skinheads and these neo-Nazis would ask me, do you take the bus with black people? That was someone saying, how's your day? Yeah. How's your life, Frank? Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll go into your story a little bit more as we continue. Sure. But, I mean, I mean, you hear that. Yeah. You hear this, there's this camaraderie. Um, and I think Frank also talked about the separation because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of self-segregation going on in this country. And when you don't know each other, yeah. it kind of uh, underscores and lends to this hate. 
It lends to the hate. And I think one of the things is that the media promotes that. So, for instance, there's an equal number of white individuals who are fighting against white supremacy. Yes. You don't get historical colleges, historical black colleges and universities without whites of great conscience who saw the humanity in individuals. When you look at W.E.B. Du Bois, he speaks glowingly yes. about John Brown, the abolitionist. When you talk about Martin Luther King, you cannot separate Martin Luther King out from Rabbi Abraham Yahshua Heschel because they both come out of that same tradition, which is let's unify our, our common interests and let's and look at the humanity And white people were getting killed during the certainly, civil rights movement certainly, certainly, just during, as black people were getting certainly killed. Certainly during the freedom rides and things of that nature. Um, if you just look at what we've been dealing with from the Pennsylvania Human Relations Committee, perspective with the flyers of KKK, anti-Semitism and racism in the Commonwealth. For me, it's not so much the leaflets. It's the structure. It's the systemic and structural inequality that happens in the Commonwealth. It's also uh, the, the notion that whether it's a long wolf person or a person as part of a group, it's still mm-hmm. a root of mm-hmm. white supremacy. So the killing, barbaric mm-hmm. and horrific as it was at the Tree of Life Synagogue, is definitely mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. But we're afraid to talk about it from the perspective of white nationalism, white extremism, and white supremacy. Because that's what it is, albeit it was anti-Semitism. Our hate crimes tend to say, well, no, that was a firebombing, so it's arsonous. When actually, no, it's a firebombing that was done because you're targeting someone because of a protected class you yeah. know, category. You didn't just trespass um, simply because you wanted to trespass. You trespassed simply because it was an Asian American Pacific Islander individual married to a black woman. And so that's where it becomes a hate crime. And we need to look at it and frame it out from that perspective. And yeah. And and so I I agree. I mean, that's sort of the othering. There's a lot of othering going on and separating people by race, by gender, by sexual orientation and things. And that makes it easier to to hate. And so, um, Roger, let's discuss this political climate. I mean, there's been this uptick in hate. We have more than 50 percent increase in anti-Semitic acts. When we link this to this idea of white supremacy, and it's because a lot of people feel like the power structure is under attack or threat right now. Yes, there is a tendency by some to talk about white racism, white supremacy, as if it's a kind of uh, uh, hot lava under the surface of American life that sometimes bubbles up for mysterious reasons. But the truth is that there are both uh, personal reasons, like Frank has given, why a person undergoing trauma might find a sense of inclusion in a Mm. white supremacist group. But even more, there are political reasons. It is when national leaders suggest to those who have economic and cultural grievances uh, that they can find answers by restoring the America in which white people ruled unchallenged. Uh, That kind of message uh, leads to a surge of white nationalist organizing, a surge of hate crimes, and unfortunately we're seeing it now. The current administration, whatever they uh, intend to do, are definitely using language that is inspiring white nationalist groups in America, and they are more visible now than they have been in many years. And Frank, could you weigh in here on this? Because there are yes, words absolutely. I think that trigger, mm-hmm. um, that no, like I would know that these particular words mean something, but they mean something different when you hear certain language to people who are in the life, so to speak. Could you talk about that? And then I would like for you to explain why you decided to kind of leave that life. So first, the the movement got really big in the early 90s. Then the next surge was, yes, 2008. But it was mm-hmm. mostly all Internet trolls. 
There's a lot of like people in chat rooms. But the day the black guy walked in the White House, those groups grew astronomical. But what happened was Barack walled them back to sleep. He didn't do none of the stuff they said he was going to do. He didn't come for their guns. He didn't come for their land. He didn't come for reparations. He didn't come for anything. So the groups just started dying off slowly. Well, when a certain candidate runs announces his candidacy, see, to be a racist in America, no matter what, we all have to make exceptions because they were such a multicultural thing. And you'll hear it all the time. I hate all black people except for blah, because he's cool, because I know him. I go to work with him. Like, there's always, like, these exceptions now. Well, I mean, uh, when Donald Trump says they are all coming over here, they're drug dealers, they're murderers, they're gang members, but I assume some are good people. He just woke up to every racist saying, yeah, I know, I know that, I feel that same way. Yeah. And that was his day he opened up for candidacy. So that's what, see, he poked the craziest enough that he thinks he can just put him back to sleep. And he can't, like, you can't poke crazy and fear so much and then say, I'll go back. Now, thanks yeah. for giving me like the, now go back to where you're from. Yeah. And it's I was just not going to happen. Yeah. And I would also add that there's the ever changing demographics and George Takaki and others um, are, are, you know, this, this is their area of expertise when we're looking at the ever changing demographics of how whites at a particular point in time will be a, a, a underclass from a minority standpoint and they won't be in the majority. But the power structure is the ideology of white supremacy. So that, that still will be the bedrock of, of democracy. So when we're talking about post-racial, when we get the first African-American president of the United States, post-racial is still a mirage. What we're looking at now is a backlash. We, we're seeing the attack. Always a backlash. Yeah, we're seeing yeah. the attack on humanity. And, and, you know, the professor knows I'm a graduate of University of Penn, taught race relations classes at the University of Penn School of Social Policy and Practice. So when we're talking about Barack Obama's intellectual property, let's say for the sake of argument that he got into both Ivy League schools because of affirmative action. You don't get out because of affirmative action. And then we don't look at the work of Ira Katz Nelson uh, when affirmative action was white. And so this notion of just always negating black humanity, yes, he was kind of professorial but if you look at the work of nancy Pelosi's daughter in the hbo documentary uh white america feeling wrong he wasn't hitler he did not get sworn into the united states uh presidency position with his hand on the quran <laughs> you know he didn't really promote yeah. a lot of the socialists like said he kind of lulled yeah. everybody yeah. to sleep because they had these these fears mm-hmm. and then none of them happened yeah. he actually was a good guy yeah. there was no uh th- there was no scandal yeah. so to speak uh, yeah and As, now boom 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 it's so so different certainly didn't have frank talk from a, a position of experience but authenticity is really what's needed because oftentimes what happens is a dylan roof goes into the charleston south carolina church he kills nine black people and then he buys into his own victimization oh i was wayward uh the clan or you know this particular group on the website gave me an opportunity to to yeah. be a family and things of that nature and so when black or brown people are simply saying his hands up don't shoot see my humanity yeah. they're not simply saying don't uh, uh arrest me they're simply saying just don't kill me yeah and i want to i want roger i want you to comment and then frank too because what frank talked about specifically was the waking up of the crazies like he used that and you can't put them back to sleep this concept sticks with me are the crazies now awake because of this um, political climate they're definitely awake and you can argue that while barack obama lulled them to sleep to some degree he might have in fact done more to promote racial equality than he did nonetheless during his presidency republicans concerned to preserve a power structure that they benefit from and they are now overwhelmingly a white party they adopted a set of policies at the state levels that suppress the votes of people of color and poor people as 
as well in order to shore up their power structure. They uh, gerrymandered districts mm. to uh, promote their power. And even so, the establishment Republicans were astonished when Donald Trump won the nomination by more explicit appeals to concerns about our greater demographic diversity, uh, criticizing uh, Mexicans, criticizing uh, Muslims, characterizing uh, the lives of brown and black Americans in highly negative terms. And he's gone on to use language like uh, America First, which was a pro-Nazi slogan in the 1940s. He's gone on to use language like nationalism, which since World War II has been identified with ethnic or racial nationalism. And even though uh, a lot of people unfamiliar with that history may not understand the background of those terms, the white nationalist groups do understand. And when they hear him use that language, they are definitely awakened and inspired to act. Frank, you were in that life. You you see what's happening from a different lens. When I first heard all this, we knew it was wrong, but we didn't know how wrong it could be and what was happening because of the language that was being used. So what changed it for you? Because the crazies are awake. What's going to change anything, Frank? To put some more depth into exactly what these two gentlemen are saying. When I was first doing these groups, it's just a bait and switch. I go to a guy who says he just wants to be proud of his heritage. That's how I first would find a guy I'm going to recruit. I'm just going to be proud of my heritage. I can't be proud of my heritage. How come they can have BET and I can't have white entertainment television, even though all television is white entertainment television, and even though... and acronym for white entertainment television is uh, not really appropriate. So I think that when I would go to this guy and say, you want to be part of a group that wants to be proud of your heritage, come join my group. And when he comes join my group, here's the trick. We never talk about our heritage. We talk about everyone else's heritage. We talk about how they've done us wrong. And so you don't, cause you can only talk about Lee Erickson so much. We real quickly, it's a bait and switch to return his false pride into we know he has fear because it's all fear-based. The whole, everything about this is all fear. They're going to take what's mine. And so I take his fear and his false pride and I turn it into hate. Mm. That's how you do it. It's the greatest bait and switch ever pulled. So how'd you, what made you decide to, to, to leave? Well, unfortunately, I, was, I caught a case and, and went to uh, adult prison at 17 years old in the, out in the state of Illinois. And while I was there, I started noticing that since I was from Philly and I was more of a city kid, when the kids would go out and play football, and I was always really good at football, I always ran into pen relays as one of the fastest, you know, one of the fastest city kids. I was always like one of the white kids there. There's like a hundred kids there. I was always just a good athlete. So I go out to go play football with some of the black kids, and I kind of related more with them. They, they've been on L trains. All my Aryan guys were all bikers. I'd never been on a Harley in my life. So there was like these little commonalities. That's first off. And then I noticed when I look back on it now how there was times when like G or Jello, the guys I used to hang with, like, I would, they could bring a smile to my face. Even in prison, you know what I mean? Just, they just could. None of my Aryan guys could, you know, I didn't have anything really in common with them. But I had to, when I got out of prison, I started to change my life. I had to know that I still would drive down the street and I'd see a, a black guy selling food stamps back then. They still sold food stamps. they say, you know, 50 cents on the dollar. And i say, see, that's what I'm talking about. i like, wait a minute. My mom does that. She just does it out of her house. Like, what's the difference? You know, or an Asian person would cut me off and i say, oh, uh, you know the stereotype. And i think, my aunt ran over a cow this year. Like, <laughs> yeah. how do you run over a yeah. cow? Like, they're not deer. They don't jump in your way. It, was, it already had established its position there. And my aunt still hit it. So, like, I had to... Do that in my brain for a long time. But then when Oklahoma City bombing happened, 
is where I got real. Like I seen that picture of that fireman running down the street with that, that little girl. And I just knew that that's where my hate was going to. And I had already started to leave the movement. And the last thing was the guy up in Fox Chase, a Jewish man gave me a job, even though I had a swastika on my neck and an antique business. And he taught me all about the business and, mm. you know, just took me under his wing and said, I don't care what you believe, just don't break my furniture. And uh, for about six months, he was the guy who I just drove with every day. And I'd always say I was stupid. I guess I, I had a tick in my head. I thought I was stupid because my parents told me that. And so whenever one time I broke something, I said, Keith, I'm so stupid. He gripped me up. And he said, stop saying you're stupid, you idiot. Clean up the mess because I broke a piece of furniture. He goes, clean it up. I went to go. And I cleaned it up. And he just gave me this talking to yeah. about just being a man. He, he was the right person in my life. And it changed so, you. And it changed you. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And but you so, can't be an overnight change. It can't be, you know, it's just not, it's not, that's, to me, that's not real unless you're like, you know, Paul on the road to the you know, something like that. Yeah. But that didn't happen to me. I can't say that happened to me. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, this is a very personal yeah. change for Frank. It's it's very personal and it's very individual. So I don't know how do we make massive change yeah. because, yeah. I mean, we gotta, I mean, there's a lot of people who feel afraid. Yeah. Um, you know, how do we make this massive change? Well, I don't know how we actually make the massive change per se, but I think that when you look at institutions, institutions are comprised of who? Human People. beings. Yeah. And so every day we have to make sure, for me as a male, I have to make sure that I'm mindful of my male privilege. I'm 6'6". Six, six. I go to an ATM machine. I take money out. I don't think about being robbed. Uh, when I walk down the street, I don't have sensors in the back of my head. Um, but when two individuals in my family uh, on two different college campuses five years ago, both were victims of date rape, I started to recognize, you know, the fact that there are some spaces that I need to work in um, to, to bring about advocacy. I think what Frank is talking about is uh, metamorphosis. Of, yes. of the human spirit, but self-introspection. I think from an institutional standpoint, though, we still have challenges around mass incarceration. We still have redlining, and we also have, you know, mm -hmm. spatial segregation, or what Doug Massey talks about, the American apartheid. We have American apartheid in our educational structures, even in rural areas in Pennsylvania, as well as suburban areas, when we're looking at the hold harmless formula yeah. and the funding of how we fund mm -hmm. schools. So I think from an institutional standpoint, we really have to look at the fact that Aspects of our government still is built on the bedrock of white supremacy and institutional mm -hmm. racism. And so we have to look at that. I think that, you know, aside from us being academics and intellectual, the professor and myself, is that we also have grassroots organizations that are doing the work. So the NAACP, ADL, you know, there's the YWCA, the YMCA. I think anti-racism classes um, are, should be mandatory on college campuses, as well as diversity and multicultural yeah. classes and things of that nature. And I think also those who have the passion to want to run for government, who have the skill set around ethnography, anthropology, social work, social policy, political science, need to maybe say, you know what, to move the democracy further along, yeah. I'm going to become that council person. And you have to, and that's what we're seeing, um, Rogers. We're seeing we, we the backlash to the um, increase in this hateful rhetoric was that you have more women now elected than ever who will be um, entering Congress. You saw the Democrats take the House. We had the first um, women, Muslim, Muslim women. We had, the you know, so many firsts now. Is this sort of the, the, the backlash? Could you talk about the backlash to the hate rhetoric that we're now seeing with after this midterm election? We have elected the most diverse House of Representatives in the history of the United States, and that is a sign that in our political contestation, uh, the forces pushing for egalitarian inclusion 
can succeed. But it's also true that the number of Republican women in the House declined and that Republicans Mm -hmm. enhanced their control of the Senate with more uh, old white male senators. So it is an ongoing battle. And in that battle, we need to call our political leaders to account both to have policies that combat uh, racial discrimination uh, and racially skewed mass incarceration and other issues. But we also need policies to address the conditions that are breeding grounds for attraction to white supremacy. We need uh, investments in infrastructure that would provide jobs for the deindustrialized parts of America where uh, a lot of working class white Americans can't get work. We need to address the opioid epidemic. And for those areas that are getting uh, lots of immigrants suddenly and unexpectedly, uh, we benefit from immigrants, but we should have policies that assist those communities to be able to absorb and assist those immigrants to the benefit of all. So we uh, both have to work for greater diversity, but we also want public policies uh, that address the needs of all Americans. And I do want to make a quick point because what I've heard from working class people of all races is that they do feel threatened by the whole idea of immigration. So that issue to me transcends race because people who are working class feel like their jobs are threatened. So I want to talk have Frank respond to what Rogers just said. I mean, what could help? I mean, because, you know, a lot of folks have woke, have are now awoke or awake, however you want to say it. And, um, and, and how do you sort of, if you, if you have more jobs, if you do these things that Rogers is talking about, will that satisfy this group that is so concerned about the power structure? When I do an intervention on somebody, it isn't, or an outreach to somebody, it isn't that I go there and I say, you know, I have a magical, potion here. What I do is, is I, I find out about, about the human being. Yeah. The guy yeah. that I'm doing this with. So because you know a lot of people go to these rallies now and they throw rocks and bottles at the neo Nazis and everyone goes a guy goes up and punches some redneck in the face and he goes, I'm fighting racism and it's like, nah, you're not really. You're just punching a redneck in the face. When I was in the marches and rallies when they would throw bottles at us, I would I never once stuck the bottle and thought, Whoa, I better rethink my beliefs here. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't think that at all. So mm-hmm. that doesn't work. You can't fight ideology with them. So when I'm sitting down with someone, I don't go into, oh, my God, let me get out the stats because you're so wrong and you're so dumb. Can't right? Because that's you, what yeah. he's already heard from other people. So I sit there and I talk to him. I say, when you first joined this group, is what you're doing right now what you thought you'd be doing? Do you think you'd be the next Hitler? Or are, would you be this guy I'm talking to who's on probation right now? Yeah. Like, this is your life. And so racism is also one of the most laziest groups you can join. I'm going to join a group. I didn't do anything to achieve it. My parents just happened to have intercourse and I became out of it. So I didn't achieve anything. I just, how great is it for a person who really doesn't think they can achieve anything that I've already achieved it just by the way I was born. Very lazy. You know, it's very lazy. But when I'm talking to somebody, the key words that, that I always hear from people is, you know, now today's lingo is changing. And I'm going to tell you who's the top dog in this. And this is Fox News. Fox News uses our lingo that has changed. Instead of saying Jew, they'll say federal government, or they'll say, um, you, know, enti- you know, or for black people, you know, they're entitled, or they're entitled to everything, you know. They use the same word, but they'll use the same exact sentence, but they'll take, like, the N-word out, and they'll put in entitlement. And that's it's, sort of the idea of this secret language that a lot of folks do. And I have one question before we go to our closing statement, and this is to everybody does this whole system of white uh, male supremacy, and I'll put male supremacy as well, does it need to be dismantled in order for us to move forward? 
or is there a way to sort of make it work with what we're trying to do? Does it need to be dismantled? I think um, all forms of oppression and marginalization, starting with institutional racism, prejudice plus power and the ideology of white supremacy needs to be attempted to be dismantled. I think, once again, it's as old as it is, as empire is, yeah. uh, as part of the, the, the fabric of the democracy. But I, I think we're, we're always encouraged, those of us yeah. who are committed to being prisoners of hope, that every morning you get up and you try to fight racism, you try to fight homelessness, you try to fight poverty, you try so to provide issues. the reduction of violence, but these things are permanent. They're, they're age old, but I think one of the challenges, once again, is from an academic standpoint, and but also just a practical standpoint, having not just a discussion, but looking at it as, as the professor said from a policy standpoint. So in our academic halls, it's those anti-racism courses. It's letting individuals know because they're going to be the ones that are going to be part of the power structure. So for me, when I was teaching at Penn and Westchester University, it was doing lectures on Janet Helm's white identity development model where whites have a strong ethnic identity. You're from Bosnia, Germany, but they don't have a strong racial identity and the racial identity is rooted in superiority. But what you say is no, it's okay to be white, just not from a superiority standpoint. That's what gives you Dorothy Tilly. That, that's what gives you Jane Covington yeah. who worked with W.E.B. Du Bois with the Niagara movement that brought birth to the NAACP. And so it's really that. And then on the basic level, it's making sure that we engage in conversations and we yeah. foster conversations and that when one particular group engages in a horrific act, we call it for what it is, white terrorism. We don't sit up and say, let's give them a biopsychosocial assessment. But then with Eric Garner, it was like, well, he was selling cigarettes and he should have just complied when he actually didn't. And I think that's what people are saying. People are not yeah. simply saying, yeah. Yeah. you know, don't take us to jail. They just simply say, why is it that Ted Bundy, why is it that the Unabomber and others walked away. Why is it that police officers, you're not able to like, yeah. you know, shoot freely when it comes to us. You're able to shoot on point and take us out. And there's this different structure yeah. here. So, I mean, all these folks coming into office right now, do they need to dismantle things or Rogers, what? We do need to dismantle structures of unequal power, domination, subordination. We can be a diverse country that has conservative religious communities, that has ethnic communities of a variety of sorts. Uh, but what we can't have is some communities that systematically have economic, political, and social privileges that others do not. Unfortunately, we built the country with deeply entrenched systems of uh, racial and uh, uh, patriarchal privilege, and it is an ongoing project to dismantle them from which we cannot turn away. Yeah. And I want to, and because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. America is on this brink of change. We talked about the dismantling of the power structure. How do we do that while maintaining peace and democracy? And try to give us a little silver lining here. I, For me, I'm going to continue to do it like Martin Luther King and, and Rabbi Abraham Yahshua Heschel. They created the beloved community. They did it with love. They spoke truth to power with love. But also that love actually resonated into policy changes. And it was policy changes for all of humanity. All right, Rogers. There's nothing inevitable about progress in America, but nonetheless, if you look through our history by building on our best ideals, we have made some genuine progress. And the greater diversity of modern America actually makes it possible to extend that progress farther than ever before. Uh, this is a project that we should all embrace. All right. Final word to you, Frank. What the white supremacists want is they want their own homeland in America. They want to take up the Northeast and the Northwest. But we have to know as human beings is you put all the haters in one spot, you're going to start hating each other. So go learn. But I do think that humanity, see, because empathy is one of the greatest things that got me. That's what started to change me. So when you put empathy and humility together, you have a great chance for humanity. So when I can stop thinking just about myself, so uh, part of that is 
not thinking less of myself, but thinking about myself less and thinking of others, my day and my world get better in front of me right now. It happens. It isn't some tested, you know, this is just something, if I'm a good human being, my karma score goes up and that's what we need to do. And I know that the middle of this country, and I don't mean by the section, the middle, uh, standing people will stand up and say enough is enough. Yeah. And I truly do believe that humanity will win out in the end. Wonderful. So thank you so much. That was a nice humanity will win in the end. I love that. So I want to say thank you to Chad Dion Lassiter. Thank you to Roger Smith. And thank you to Frank Mink for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, dozens of political races were too close to call days after the midterms. People have to let that process play out. A voting expert digs into just how votes are counted. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is voter disenfranchisement, or how about voter fraud? Now, those ideas, they've been tossed around since the midterm election as Florida and Georgia recounts votes from races with razor-thin margins, with some still undecided. Republican Rick Scott says Democratic incumbent Bill Nelson is trying to steal the election illegally. The day after the election, at least two dozen races were too close to call, and locally, it took more than a week to declare Democratic challenger Andy Kim winner of New Jersey's third congressional district race. With me on the phone to help us dig into how votes are counted is Marianne Schneider. She is the president of Verify Voting. Welcome to Flashpoint, Marion. Thank you for having me. So you've been working for years, showing up the democratic process. When it comes to elections, now, please tell us about your latest work. What is Verified Voting for folks who don't know what this organization is? Verified Voting is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, and we protect the fundamental right to vote where voting intersects technology. So it was founded by computer scientists back in 2004 because they understood when computers count our votes that they present certain vulnerabilities and issues that we need to put processes in place to protect ourselves from. Cybersecurity has changed enormously in the past decade. Before, people thought they could prevent Cyber attacks. Now, cybersecurity experts agree we can never get the risk down to zero. So we have to be able to detect when something goes wrong, respond to it, and recover from it. We take that those concepts and apply them to elections. Yeah, and that's a very serious issue because right now we're seeing very close elections all over the country. Most people understand, you know, you register to be a voter. Then you vote and you cast a ballot on Election Day. But what happens once the polls close? That's a really good question. Once the polls close, that really starts the process. And that process can take some time. It doesn't happen overnight. What what you get reported on Election Night are really unofficial. So when the polls close, that's when the poll workers uh, start to reconcile the ballots that were cast at the precinct that day. If there are all electronic voting machines in the precinct, they will close those down and print out those the results that were recorded on the machines. You know, every state is different, but there will be a process for reconciling those results with the 
people who showed up and the materials are gathered up and sent back to a central location, usually the county, sometimes a municipality, depends on the state. That process takes a couple of hours on election day, and then the county aggregates all of the different polling location data and uh, publishes those, and then sends them over to the state, and then that's what we see on the website. But all of those are unofficial until the official canvas starts, which can start a couple of days after that. I'm going to stop you right here because people think they're watching CNN, they're watching CBS, they're watching all of this, and they think that, boom, when, when these news organizations call the election, that that is definitive. What do you say in response to that? I would say that the majority of the votes that were cast are cast by the end of the night on election day. So in a lot of races where they're not very close, yeah, they can call the race based on the majority of votes that were cast at the end of election day. But what we're seeing across the country is that there are some close races and they're going to be too close to call because there are still ballots to be counted. And there's reasons for that. Because there's multiple types of ballots. There's more than just you going into the booth on election day. That's right. Every state has an absentee ballot law. And how you get to request an absentee ballot and when it has to be returned varies from state to state. And in most states, not all the absentee ballots are counted at the end of the night on election night. So that's the first set of ballots that have to be counted afterwards. And then military and overseas ballots that are also, you know, they're a subset, a kind of absentee ballot. They get extra time, especially in federal elections. They can have their ballots submitted, and that's perfectly normal. Some in Pennsylvania, for example, those ballots won't be received until a week after the election. In other states, it's, it can even be longer. Those are all valid ballots that have to be counted and won't be counted on election night. Another big category of ballots that won't won't be counted right away are provisional ballots. Yes. And what, what those are is when a voter comes to the polling place and they think that they're registered, but they're not in the books. Mm. Well, they're still allowed to cast a provisional ballot. And then later, the county reviews that provisional ballot to see if they were eligible to vote. And a lot of times there there were mistakes, and that's why they're not in the, um, not in the uh, poll book. And those ballots will be counted. And sometimes they... You know, they won't be counted because the voter wasn't in the poll book or didn't get registered on time or other reasons. So that those those are two categories of ballots that have to be dealt with after the fact. So and we, when you have a very close election, they can sometimes be determinative, right? Yes. And that's when people and I think that's what's been happening because you saw in Florida, Andrew right. Gillum conceded. Then he had to go back and recant the concession. And we've and it's almost reminiscent of 2000. Uh, when you're dealing with Florida, Al Gore had, con- you know, conceded and then had to go back and stop. And, and so people think, you know, people get concerned when they see this. Explain the validity of something like that. The concession happened too soon because maybe the candidates didn't know the universe of outstanding ballots. We had this 20, just for an example, the 2018 election was a very high turnout election, mm. much higher than the last midterm elections. And so it may be that people didn't realize how many absentee ballots had been cast and were outstanding, but also what's not clear on election night is how many provisional ballots were cast. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons for an increase in provisional ballots. And we really, you know, that's an issue that we want to deal with because we don't want to have a lot of provisional ballots. We want all eligible voters to be in the poll books. We want all eligible voters to be able to cast their ballots on election night. But that's a well, you know, that's a fail safe. That's, you know, to protect voters. That's what that's there for. So 
So just because there are a lot of ballots outstanding after election night, that doesn't mean that anything bad has happened. So I think it's possible that candidates don't realize how many are still outstanding. And when they see how close the race is, then they say, oh, well, let's not concede. Let's let's wait till every ballot is counted. Yeah. And that's kind of what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. She's like, look, we're going to wait. And I'm going to wait until this is done. And then when the races are so close, most states provide, uh, you know, the recount uh, option uh, and and people look at that. And, and you've been hearing on one hand, you got uh, Republican lawmakers yelling fraud, uh, even our president, President Donald Trump saying that. And then on the other side, people are saying suppression. So what does that concept, those Uh, types of allegations due to voter perception of the process itself? Well, I think it's really unfortunate that people aren't giving this the canvassing that what we're doing now, what states are doing now is called the official canvas of votes. Mm. And people have to let that process play out in the way that it's intended to. And I think that the rhetoric surrounding Florida from the president is unfortunate because there's nothing untoward going on there. They're counting the ballots. Now, I will say mistakes get made. And I will say that there have been there has been a lot of concern leading up to Election Day of efforts to prevent eligible voters from voting. And that has to stop. Just as a basic tenet of our democracy, we have to make our election procedures available to all eligible voters who wish to vote. And we have to do it in a way that doesn't impede their fundamental right to vote. So I fully support efforts to make sure that all eligible voters have their ballots cast and that they don't have impediments to registration. But you're exactly right. We need to have a trustworthy process from beginning to end, from the time a voter wants to register till they get their ballot, their ballot is cast, and it gets counted the way they intend it. And that's the challenge before us. Yeah. And I want to just, you know, sort of lay out because you've been working on this. I met you back in 2012 when Pennsylvania was dealing with uh, a voter ID law that had passed in this Commonwealth. And so let's talk about, you know, because suppression efforts are real. People talk about, you know, folks leaving lines in some places because the lines were too long or because the power went out or because there wasn't enough voting machines. There's a lot of issues surrounding of voting in North Dakota, where it it, it endangered yes. the potential vote of Native Americans. Native Americans. Yeah. yeah. And then in Georgia, they had issues with uh, this verification of signature. But folks say that having broadening this access could also lead to more fraud. And so there's there's tension on both sides. You have to think about what's the definition of voter fraud mm-hmm. when we talk about that. And are we talking about people showing up at the polling place and pretending that there's somebody else? or trying to vote more than once, because that would be really difficult. And even these close elections, when we're talking about, you know, a quarter percent or a half a percent, it's tens of thousands of votes. So the size of the conspiracy that you would need to change an election doing by having people impersonate other people is really quite large and would break down. And, and the studies that have been done on that kind of voter fraud have shown that it's exceedingly rare. Yeah, And there there aren't a lot of prosecutions for that. But I think the bigger risk that we have to look at, and mm. this is something that is concerning me as a former, I, I don't know if you realize this, but formerly I was the deputy secretary for elections mm. and administration in Pennsylvania. There's other risks to our voting systems. And 83% and in 50 counties in Pennsylvania, 
We use computers that have no record of the voters' choices. There's no paper ballot that is saved for as a backup for recounts and audits. And that's a risk that is something we could change mm. by replacing our equipment with equipment that has incorporates a voter mark paper ballot that's then saved and is available for recounts. Georgia has is the same way. A hundred percent of Georgia, there's no ability to do a recount in that race. All you can do is call up the computer memory and have it print out the results again. And we need to give election officials the tools to demonstrate that the software has counted the votes correctly. And that's what Verified Voting advocates for. Yeah, because that's what's happening now. They have a recount going on in Georgia, recounts going on in Florida and, and, you know, in other places as well. I mean, a lot of these races have been with hair thin margins where recount provisions have been triggered. So I want you to, before we close this up, just tell us what are some of the fail safes? Cause you mentioned we don't have this paper ballot, you know, available uh, for some of these electronic voting devices. And so what type of fail safes are there so that people can feel comfortable and comforted that their vote will count? First of all, most election officials, the ones that I've dealt with in Pennsylvania and, and met in other states, really do care about elections and running smooth elections for the most part. I'm sure there's are exceptions to every rule, but in my experience, they really want to run smooth elections. And so they and they do it with very few resources because our elections are underfunded. But the fail-safes that you mentioned are making sure that you follow best practices for computers and following them with regard to your election computers, both the computers that program the voting devices and the voting devices in the field. And the second fail-safe is having that paper ballot so that after the fact, you can sample. It's not enough just to have a paper ballot. You have to sample it to make sure that the computer recorded the votes properly. We want to we want to leverage technology to make our lives easier. And there's no problem in doing that, but you just have to check and make sure that it's operating properly. And when you don't have that fail safe, then you can't, um, you, you can't bolster the perception that our democracy is working well. But there's, there's a lot of steps in the process that need to be taken to make sure it's trustworthy. And I, and I want to emphasize that the risk with computers are risks doesn't mean that they'll happen, but we can never get the risk down to zero. We have to be prepared in case something does happen. Like in Florida, they do have paper ballots and they re- they can do a recount, but they just rescan them again. And we need to be able to sample the either the first time or the second time, yeah, either time, just to make sure the software is counting those ballots correctly. And when we do that, then we can say to people, well, we have these risks, but here's how we can show that that risk didn't happen this time or that our count is correct. This is so important because democracy doesn't work if people don't have faith or there are major flaws in the voting process. So I think what we're seeing in the midterms is that we have more work to do in that area to make sure that people perceive that the process is trustworthy, but it's solvable. And sometimes technology gets out ahead of us. And we have to make sure that we use technology in a responsible way that does enhance the confidence in the election. Yeah, wonderful. And my last question to you, Marion, you, I mean, you're working to um, make this system better, to make it more trustworthy. What would a modern day election look like that you think would satisfy some of the weaknesses that you currently see could uh, be exploited in our system? A modern day system that we are supporting right now, and given the state of technology today, like includes computers that 
have a voter marked paper ballot, whether the voter marks them with a pen or a pencil or uses a device that has assistive technology for voters with disabilities. And then that ballot is scanned and retained for looking at later. And a lot of states do that already. There's a lot of states all over the country that have this kind of equipment. It's a two-pronged thing, though. Once you have the paper ballot, you have to put into place a routine post-election tabulation audit to check that the software counted the ballots correctly. So that would ensure confidence in our election. But the final thing is, if we're going to use computers, we have to adequately fund the infrastructure and the training of poll workers and election officials and the cybersecurity uh, expertise that needs to go along with deploying our elections safely. Yeah. So we have a good system. We can make it better. And we are we need more money. <laughs> that's basically right. what that's you're it. saying. That's about it. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. So I want to say thank you so much to Marianne Snyder for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you for having me. Next up, they're breaking bread to stop the violence. Recreate the village, then we'll reduce the harm. A community dinner, an effort to help those on both sides of the gun. We'll be right back. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the tweets with Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bond. Hey, Brianna. Hey, Cherry. So we're taking it to the tweets, getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. So this week, we posted a poll about Johnny Bobbitt again. (laughs) We're here again. Um, obviously we had a panel on this for a refresher. He was the homeless man. He helped a woman who allegedly, yes, allegedly he helped. He was, he's known for helping a woman. She's on the side of the road for a quick refresher. He gave her his last 20 bucks and, uh, she started to go fund me along with her boyfriend to pay him back. Yes. And so they went viral and everyone was in love with the story around this time last year. We had a panel on it, and it's come out. Apparently, it was all a scam. Yeah, it was a scam. But we are on our Flashpoint show, dated September 26th. We had a (laughs) guest who alluded to this, possibly. We did. Yeah, Tom Nichols, he came on, and he said that he, he knew Johnny Bobbitt from before, and he's a journalist as well. And he said that there were some sketchy things about him. And if you guys want, you can go get a refresher. And listen to that. We posted it again on our Twitter at Flashpoint Show. And you can hear all the juicy details. Yeah, very interesting situation. So people, uh, we did our Flashpoint poll on this. We what did, did the, people have to say? We did the poll. And so the question was, after all of this, do you think the Johnny Bobby case will discourage people from giving to GoFundMe charitable campaigns? And so the options were yes, no trust. No, there's good ones. Maybe more skeptical. And lastly, I don't know. So the top answer was maybe more skeptical. Followed yeah. by, and that was 62%, followed by with 27%, yes, no trust. The light here at the end of the tunnel is that most people aren't to just say no. Yeah. They're not. People are going to give, I think. Yeah. They, people like to give, but they're just going to check it out first. Yes. Maybe not to a homeless man helping out somebody. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that story has been told. Yes, but people are still willing, but they'll just be a little more critical, which you should be when you're giving, as our panel discussed. Yeah, but I will say that uh, the GoFundMe is refunding all of the thousands and thousands of donors for a total of 400000 400 plus thousand dollars. So they do get their money back. Very good. Very good. So people don't have to be so afraid. But the trouble here was this might have not come out. 
Yeah. And there are probably some ones that haven't come out. But again, there have to be a lot of good ones on there. And GoFundMe is obviously these campaigns are helping a lot of average, everyday, normal people. Yeah. And I mean, these folks were real greedy. And otherwise, we we would have never found out. So. (laughs) So that's all for this week's Flashpoint on the tweets. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Look for the hashtag Flashpoint Poll. Thanks, everybody. Bye. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Thanksgiving is a time for family and friends to gather to give thanks. But in some of the poorest parts of our city, Thanksgiving can bring to mind hardships. Well, in comes the Charles Foundation, a nonprofit that works year-round to reduce violence and increase hope to individuals on both sides of the gun. The foundation is expanding its work this year ahead of Turkey Day with a community dinner. Here to tell us more about it is founder Movita Johnson Harrell. Welcome to Flashpoint, Movita. Cherry, how are you? I'm good. And so, for people who don't know, I mean, the Charles Foundation does so much work, and you guys are doing some Thanksgiving work now. Absolutely. So, the Charles Foundation, Charles is an acronym for Creating Healthy mm-hmm. Alternatives, Results in Less Emotional Suffering. So, what we're doing is looking to help the community to empower the community. So, on Thanksgiving, we're actually going to be feeding the community. Wow. And tell me why feeding the community is so important. Because specifically where we are in West Philadelphia at Mm -hmm. 52nd and Wallusen, it's a very poor neighborhood. And there are a lot of people who are homeless in that neighborhood and they don't have a home to go to for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. So the Charles Foundation's mission is to empower our communities on both sides of the gun so that people are making better decisions other than getting into violence and causing harm or being harmed themselves. So we figure if we can get out and we can love our community and empower them and recreate the village, then we'll reduce the harm. Yeah. And your passion comes from personal experience. Yes. And and tell us about it. So I've basically been um, exposed to violence my whole life. My father was murdered in front of my family when I was eight years old. And then in July of 1991, my only brother was murdered. And on January 13, 2011, my 18-year-old son, Charles Johnson, was murdered in a case of mistaken in Philly, even though I packed my family up, moved away from Philly three years prior. Yeah, and that mistaken identity is real because you thought moving your family, moving your son, moving your kids outside of the city would save them. Absolutely. And we had the means to, right? Most families don't. So we had the means to leave the city and move to Lansdowne and, and thought that we were safe. And in actuality, we weren't. And that's what I often tell people, Cherry. Like, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your color or your religion. Violence is violence. Violence is violence. And so the Charles Foundation, when you say both sides of the gun, you actually go and talk to the youth, the individuals most likely to kill. Absolutely. So we were actually the moral voice of the community for the focus deterrent strategy Mm. where we engage those likely to kill and be killed. And we actually talked to almost 200 young men in Philadelphia in the pilot program. In 2013, we had a 60 percent reduction in homicide in the pilot in Philadelphia. Wow. We created a Be the Change program for us for the summer where we pay young people identified as at risk in urban communities. We pay them to come and be a part of a 12 week program where we educate them on where they come from. They were they come from African kings and queens. We take them down to Constitution Center. We take them where the slaves were held in Philadelphia. And we show them that they're above what they're seeing in their communities. And we teach them to be the change. Yeah, and I just did a story just a few days ago about a, a Philadelphia mother who lost three of her sons to gun violence. I mean, you know, Miss Garner is so sad to yeah. hear Quana Garner's story 
and then uh, to, to, to then know that there have been over 1,200 shootings. People don't talk about the number of shootings. They only look at the homicides. But the shootings cause trauma, which then people have unreasonable reactions and anger and pain, which could lead to more shootings and possibly more death. Absolutely. So we have hypervigilance yes. to trauma and, and hurt in our communities, right? I do some work with Scott Charles over at Temple Trauma Center, and he does a cradle-to-grave program. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I want to make happen, I want every young person in Philadelphia to go through that program because all they see is what they see on the movies and they see after the person's released in the hospital. They don't see how they use a metal crank, the crank open, the, trest, the chest tube, to go inside to find out where the bullets are. They don't see that a person isn't even given anesthesia when they come into the trauma unit that they just stick them with a scalpel and open them up because there is no time for anesthesia. Kids need to see that and maybe they'll stop shooting. Yeah, definitely. And in the meantime, you'll be serving people on Thanksgiving. Where can people go if they want to be a part or volunteer or support you in this effort? So if you want to contact us, you can go to thecharlesfoundation.com, www.thecharlesfoundation.com, or you can call Yancey Harrell at 267-606-7773, or you can just show up on Sunday, November 18th at 2 p.m. at the corner of 52nd and Wallusen, and we will be out there with tables. We'll be doing a Thanksgiving dinner and carryout containers, and we will also be giving away clothes. Wonderful. So this is a full-service situation happening in West Philly. We need full service all over the city, Cherry. Yes, we do. And I just want to say thank you to Movita Johnson Harrell. For people who don't know, Movita actually works for the Philadelphia DA's office helping victims. Yes, I do. And and I'm sure you're providing a very unique perspective. The first person that actually has lost someone um, in such a tragic way who's serving in this role. Yes, thank you to DA Larry Krasner for actually noticing the significance of having a co-victim sit in that seat. Yeah. And so Movita Johnson Harrell, the Charles Foundation, check them out, thecharlesfoundation.com. Thanks so much. Thank you, Cherry. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me. Mine is Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As President John F. Kennedy once said, if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can make the world safe for diversity. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.